Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. As many of you know, I recently joined others of our downtown interfaith senior clergy group on a civil rights pilgrimage to the South. The group included uh, an imam, a rabbi, a minister of a historically African-American church here in town, Roman Catholic priests, various sorts of Protestants, and me. Uh, we're all from the immediate downtown core, and we meet for breakfast every month and then for special occasions. We visited many of the sites made famous um, and often infamous during the civil rights era of the mid-1960s. That's the 16th Baptist Church. Some of you remember when four uh, black girls were killed in a bombing there in 1963. We were honored to attend the Martin Luther King Day service at Ebenezer Baptist Church as special guests there in Atlanta where MLK's father was minister, MLK was the assistant minister, and where newly elected Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock is now the senior minister. One of MLK's daughters, Bernice King, spoke, as did Senator Warnock, and the featured speaker was Brian Stevenson. You heard his voice narrating the video earlier. He's CEO of the Equal Justice Initiative and the driving force behind that legacy museum and national memorial for peace and justice in Montgomery, Alabama, mentioned. You may have also seen the movie or read the book, Just Mercy. One of the most famous bridges in the United States is the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, named after a Confederate general and uh, wizard of the KKK. That's where police attacked peaceful demonstrators in 1965, nearly killing John Lewis, and, and the event has come to be called Bloody Sunday. Martin Luther King and other civil rights advocates responded by going to Selma, including many Unitarian Universalists. Two were murdered there, UU layperson Viola Liuzzo and Reverend James Reeb. The title of my talk today is A Bridge Abandoned, and I use that title with two meanings as I alluded to with the offering. One is a simple statement of fact. As I said for the offering, Selma and the surrounding area suffer from underinvestment by both the state and the federal governments. The nearest UU congregation is over 50 miles away, and there are 38 members of that congregation. Now, many of you know I recently was in Boston, and if you've been there, you know our historic sites there are very well kept. But Selma, Alabama, the site of another American Revolution uh, is not quite in as good of shape as you see. You can't really even read the names of two of the martyrs anymore there on the civil rights uh, mural. The historic bridge and the buildings around it are falling down and were before the tornado, which has only made matters worse. 
Well, there's another meaning to a bridge abandoned. If you're interested in reading about the Unitarian Universalist role in the Selma civil rights struggle, I highly recommend a book by a friend of mine and a retired UU minister, Reverend Dr. Mark D. Morrison-Reed, titled The Selma Awakening, How the Civil Rights Movement Tested and Changed Unitarian Universalism. Morrison-Reed summarizes the Selma moment in this sad way. Unitarian Universalism in practice, structure, and complexion remained out of sync with its values. Remained out of sync with its values, which is a very damning statement, I think. Now, as many of you know, Unitarian Universalists have wrestled hard with this issue in recent years with mixed results. I don't have an answer to why we can't become a more multicultural, multiracial denomination. We have struggled, but I do want to tell you a couple of stories this morning that help me remember some basic things about America. Now, I'm a child and grandchild of sharecroppers. Many of you have heard my stories. That's a photo of my father from 1938 or so. Um, when my father was drafted into the Army in 1943, he was 5 feet 6 and weighed 95 pounds. He always joked that's why the Germans couldn't hit him, he was too skinny. <laughs> this is another one of my father and uh, one of his brothers, they're about to shuck corn. If you know anything about farming, that's uh, called a bump board on the back of the wagon. You throw the corn after you shuck it toward the uh, wagon there and uh, uh, it goes in the bed. Now, sharecroppers generally had less than nothing because they tended to have a whole bunch of children, and my grandparents had 11 children. Sharecroppers moved into wrecked one- and two-room shacks owned by the landowner they were working for. They lived according to the cycle of the agricultural year, planting in the spring, cultivating and gathering hay for the animals during the summer, then harvesting crops and killing livestock for the landowners to eat in the winter. Yes, we got the entrails. One of the practices of unscrupulous landlords was to fire the sharecropper after the crops had been planted in the spring. Then they hired another family, paying them a lower percentage of the harvest because they hadn't planted the crop. Sounds like uh, really cool for the job creator, doesn't it? But it's a little bit unscrupulous. Now once, for example, my grandfather was uh, fired by a landowner who said, you're just too proud for a poor man. And my grandparents had to get in the wagon and go down the road, taking two starving horses and 11 starving children with them. People forget the animals are starving too when the people are starving. And that was a tragedy for my family. Now, I have a friend whose father and grandparents were also sharecroppers. And I'm going to tell you the difference. You'll figure it out. My friend's father somehow got a little bit of money together, which was a great rarity for sharecroppers. The landowner figured this out, and instead of firing the sharecropper and sending him down the road, some men broke into their shack one night and murdered the man's wife and four children. No legal recourse. There wasn't for any sharecropper, really. 
No reporting in the local newspaper. My friend didn't even know that he had four half-sisters until after his father had died decades later. Now, let's think about these two stories of people living in grinding poverty. It's not difficult to realize the difference between those two stories. It's race. My friend is black. Sure, everyone should be morally appalled by both of those stories, especially my friend's family story, but for a southerner my age, it's not a surprising story. I've heard similar stories all my life, and usually they are kept as deep, dark family secrets because who wants to be perceived as a victim? As we say in the South, that was just the way it was. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. The last public lynching of the sort that we see in the movies occurred in the South in 1959. 1959. Or was it? Was the last lynching of the recent news from Memphis, Tennessee? Hmm. There are some very obvious differences between what happened to my white, pasty white, due to malnutrition family, and what happened to my friend's family. Even Florida governors can see the difference in those two stories, and that's what scares them about critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and telling accurate American history. The essential core of structural racism is, and always has been, dehumanization. That's what we see in the video, dehumanization. The essential message is there's something wrong with you, not the system, you. Did those KKK boys who killed that farmer's wife and four children, did they know they were part of something called structural racism? Well, of course not. They were just haters full of prejudice. Did Derek Chauvin know he was an enforcer of centuries-old structural racism in America when he publicly murdered George Floyd? I doubt it. He was just a hater full of prejudice. It's up to us to connect those dots and tell the truth about American society. The police officer and the KK K-boys who broke into that sharecropper's shack decades ago, and some Memphis police officers all assumed that they could torture and murder a certain category of American citizen and get away with it. Our work is connecting those dots, realizing the big picture and telling the truth. That's what Florida's governor is so afraid of. He doesn't want us to put it together and say slavery evolved into mass incarceration. The central concept from kidnapping Africans in 1619 to beating a black man on his way home in 2023 is simple and brutal. It's about dehumanization. It's all about telling a certain sort of American you are not a citizen with equal rights. You're not even fully human. That's why the 1619 Project is so hated by so many. It connects the dots and it tells the truth. 
The project of dehumanization began with the kidnappings in Africa. It continued with the Atlantic sea crossings that killed 2 million of the 12 million people shipped to this hemisphere. It continued in the slave markets. It continued with beatings and rape and the separations of families. It continued with lynchings, Jim Crow laws, redlining here in our cities. It continued with water cannons and tear gas and dogs in the 60s. And it continues with aggressive policing and mass incarceration today. The tactics have changed, but the message remains the same. You are not a citizen, you're not even human. Slavery did not end, it evolved. We witnessed the results of that evolution here in Minneapolis, and we saw it just now in Memphis, dehumanization. We can't abandon the bridge that our UU forebears died for. And I have a con concrete proposal for FUS this morning. How about an art project? What about commissioning some of the kids in the school downstairs, LoveWorks, that, that rents our space, LoveWorks Academy? Why don't we ask them, some young black artists, to paint us a picture of the dream that they see for our collective future, our collective future? Then we could display that picture, that art here, and then remind ourselves every time we see it what we are working for. Equal Justice Initiative Director Brian Stevenson phrased it better than I can. I'll end with his quote. He says, our nation's history of racial injustice casts a shadow across the American landscape. The shadow cannot be lifted until we shine the light of truth on the destructive violence that shaped our nation, traumatized people of color, and compromised our commitment to the rule of law and equal justice. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.